Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. My name is Tony Meltenberger, and I'm your host. I'm excited today to dive into this conversation with Chad Robichaud. Chad is a former JSOC Marine, been to deployed to Afghanistan eight times. He's an author, a motivational speaker, a former MMA champion, and a husband who desperately wants to teach you to fight for your marriage. We talk about overcoming adversity. We talk about the importance of fighting for what you love. We talk about using our failures in a way to help lead others to success. This was an insightful and deep conversation with a profound leader in the world today. I love Chad. I love his heart. And remember, we believe that through intentional conversation, we can help you, our listener, unpack a deeper relationship with God. That's our goal. We want you to grow with God. And so I'm excited today to jump into this conversation with Chad, episode number 146 of the podcast. And hey, if you've been listening for a long time, thank you. If this is your first time, welcome. Be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you like the episode on Spotify or on iTunes. And hey, be sure to share this episode with a friend. It's the best way to get information out about what God is doing on this platform. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Chad Robichaud. I'm excited today to be here with author, speaker, uh, Marine, MMA fighter, extraordinaire, Chad Robichaud. Chad, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to to talk with you and tell you about you know some of the things we're doing in our ministry and, and then uh, fight for us, the upcoming book. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I, man, I was looking at what you do and it's so wide and it's so, uh, like there's so many different things that I want to talk about, but I thought a good place to start would be to ask the question, um, how would you describe the call that God has placed on your life? Yeah, I think I'd really describe it as just like a burden on my heart, like, uh, not like a call like this would be cool. It would be a great way to serve. It'd be like, you know, I could use my gifts and talents to help people. It was really just a heavy burden on my heart to share what I discovered through my own journey with others, uh, to pay it forward. And then, uh, more specifically, not just to pay it forward, but to help put people in the same position I'm in to do the same, which, you know, this, we know this to be discipleship. Uh, that's, Jesus commanded us to do when he said, go forth and make disciples of all. Uh, and you know, that calling that burden was put on my heart through the Isaiah 61, uh, which talks about a nation being ruined and, uh, and, and brought down to the ashes, but they'll rise up out of the ashes and become mighty oaks of righteousness. And, uh, and, and it goes in further talking about the discipleship process and, and making leaders out of leaders. And, uh, and so that's just a, that's what I have felt, uh, since, 2011 when God put that burden on my heart and it's really never went away or faded. It's just a daily burden, uh, to do that. And, uh, and I've been doing it since. So in 2011, um, can, can you talk, tell us a little bit about that moment that, cause, cause I think a lot of us have these kind of conversion moments where it feels like things in our life just shifted. What was that like for the, you? And then how did you know how to respond in kind? Well, my conversion moment was in 2010 um, right. and you know, I could go all the way back to say, you know, for me, uh, I, I really have to go back even further in that. And if, if that's okay, I'd go back and yeah, share how I, so my, uh, my family's big military family. I'm, I mean, my uncle served in world war two. Uh, my father, uh, entered the Marine Corps for our family, became a Marine Corps legacy for 53 years now of, uh, my family consecutively serving in the Marine Corps. My father was a Marine infantryman in Vietnam. Uh, came home and struggled with a lot of things that, you know, many very veterans struggle with today. I served as a force recon Marine. I did eight deployments to Afghanistan as part of a JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command Task Force. Both my sons served in the Marines. Uh, my oldest was an uh, Afghanistan veteran as well. So we both served in the same war. My youngest is actually, I guess, somewhat ending our, our service in the Marine Corps right now because he's actually getting out because of the, the vaccine mandates, which mm. is a whole other show or topic. Uh, sure. Really- Religious uh, exemptions, uh, as well as every service member's religious exemptions, were not uh, not granted. Uh, nonetheless, um, for me, uh, during those deployments, I 
working in special operations, I faced a lot of the same things that many of our military warriors face today. Anxiety, depression, frustration, anger, uh, debilitating panic attacks, and near divorce, and a real battle with, with, with suicide and becoming another veteran suicide statistic. Uh, during the end of my deployments, uh, I started, I, probably during the middle of my deployments, I started really dealing with anger and frustration, which manifested and, uh, you know, or resulted in me coming home and taking that out of my family and not, just not being a great husband and father coming home and uh, very, you know, happy to see my family when I come back from Afghanistan. But I get home and then 24 hours later from being in Afghanistan in combat to being, you know, husband and father and Mr. Rogers, the friendly neighbor, like I couldn't flip that switch and yeah. not be that anger intense guy. And, uh, and, and I kind of justified it in my mind being, I have to be this violent angry individual to do my job and I'm going to be back in Afghanistan. So I have to be this person right now. So kind of justifying my behavior. And I mean, I, you know, slam doors and punch holes in the wall and, and break things and uh, scream at my wife and children, like a Marine Corps drill instructor. I was just, it was just not a happy place for my family to be. And not as probably not a safe place. And, you know, it's a shame to say those things, but it's, it's just true. That's where I was at the time. And even one time I remember coming home and going to be back for my little girl's birthday party. And, you know, she was so excited. She's very, she's very much like the self-proclaimed princess and has the half birthdays yeah. and celebrating her birthday on the day is like the very important thing. And she even moved her birthday to, for dad to be home from Afghanistan. And it was a very special thing for her. And, and she didn't like the icing on her cake. My daughter's very opinionated and she, mm. she still is <laughs> something so simple though. And, uh, but I just flipped out and lost my mind and grabbed a handful of my little girl's birthday cake and picked it up and threw it against the wall and like destroyed my little girl's birthday. I remember like in that moment, like thinking who behaves that way? Like what kind of dad like acts like that? But that was, you know, me uh, and the results of just the stress and anxiety and, and just anger that I had from the work I was doing in Afghanistan and coming home and trying to integrate back in, just really just manifesting out, out and onto my family. And, uh, and when I recognized that I was out of control, instead of correcting that behavior and, and backing down, I just kind of dug my heels in and said, well, this is who I am right now. And, and this yeah. Have to be this way, so I just isolated myself from my family. Didn't really deal with it, and and uh, that resulted in those symptoms, those that anger and frustration turning into these physiological symptoms that I never thought would I would deal with. Uh, uh, my arms would go numb, my face would go numb. I feel like my throat was swelling shut. And I had like a thousand pound weight on my chest, like to where I felt like I was having a heart attack or I couldn't breathe. And you know, these are signs of panic attacks. And I. Uh, I didn't want to say anything to the guys I worked with because I was in this little special operations community. I thought the guys would think I was weak and I would have thought the same of them. So I didn't speak up. I didn't say anything. And, uh, and I didn't want to go to mental health because I was worried if I went to mental health, I might lose my top secret clearance and be pulled from my job. So I just pushed it down and, and kept trying to function. And the symptoms only got worse. I started having what's called disassociation where your mind kind of feels separate from your body. You feel like detached from yourself. almost mm. like playing a video game. Uh, and everything happens a little delayed. Uh, I started having moments where I'd wake up like out of a fog and feel like, you know, everything was a blur or maybe not real. I felt like a dream. Uh, so um, these things were progressing. Then I had a very bad moment uh, during one of my deployments. I won't get all the details of it, but uh, but I, it, it resulted in 12 of our teammates being captured, killed, two Americans, 10 Afghans. And you may think the Afghans may not be as big of a deal, but to me – these were my brothers. They were my, my friends. I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't live on a base. I lived in the Afghan community because of my job. And, and, uh, I ate dinner in these people's homes and played soccer with their kids. And, and, uh, they're my friends and I love them and they would have died for me and I would have died for them. And, and I was responsible for them. And, and in fact, I do believe they did die for me. So if I was hanging on by a thread in that moment, that thread was really broken and the wheels really become the un unravel. I was brought home and, uh, diagnosed with, uh, severe chronic PTSD. And the reason I've, Finally, I spoke up is because I, I was realizing I was putting other people in danger, not just myself. So I felt the obligation to speak up. But again, I brought home, put before a psychologist, diagnosed with PTSD. And uh, and the level of panic attacks I was having at the time, it's very hard to describe if, if someone hasn't had severe panic attacks. But, you know, the best way I know to describe it is imagine you were like in the bottom of the swimming, swimming pool, like chained to the bottom, drowning to death. And you can see the air, like how desperate would you be to get that one breath of air? Imagine the level of panic as you're drowning to death. Mm. But you never drown, you never die. You that like that state of panic twenty four seven. And the wow. medicine they gave me made me either feel like a zombie or like I was it was killing me, like I was being poisoned. So I didn't like the medicine. Uh, I was in a severe state of panic. On top of that, I was completely 
ashamed because I felt like I'd failed. I mean, I'd worked my whole life to be, uh, to make it in the Marine Corps. I started training when I was 13 and 14 years old. And it was a promise me and my brother uh, had had to each other that we were to become recon Marines. So we started training and a year into our training, my brother was killed. He was shot and killed. So I had like this, this kind of life debt to my brother and made it in the Marine Corps, made it in the recon, uh, made it to force recon, made it to JSOC. And then finally got this major, amazing operation uh, in Afghanistan. And it was like I played football and started in little league and made it all the way to the NFL and then made it to the Super Bowl, which would never happen because I'm five foot three, but you get the parallel. <laughs> I worked my whole life to get there and this was my Super Bowl and I failed. So I was uh, just embarrassed. I was embarrassed uh, and yeah. I was about around my peers. So I just really wanted to hide. And my wife and my counselor were trying to find something to snap me out of it. And they, and they uh, talked me into getting on those wrestling mats and doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is wrestling-based martial art for those who don't know. And it's not, so, not something that was new to me. Uh, I did it. I say I did it since I was little, but I'm still little. I did it, I did it my whole life. I started, <laughs> I started when I was five years old. I started in Japanese jiu-jitsu and judo and, and other martial arts and grappling martial arts my whole life. I was already a professional MMA fighter on the side, and I was undefeated, so I was pretty good at it. And so when I got on those mats for the very first time, I, I felt like I found a cure. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think physical outlets like jiu-jitsu are really good for people with anxiety because you could unplug from everything you're dealing with. You can't think about Afghanistan or your buddy's going to beat you up. You have to be physically, ment- physically and mentally present. And that's a really good, healthy thing. But you could take, uh, you could take, something that's good for you, like a medicine for being sick and you could abuse it. And that's sure. what I did with jiu-jitsu. You know, I, I took this good, healthy outlet and I abused it. I didn't get well. I just stayed on his mats as, as much as possible. And don't get me wrong. I love jiu-jitsu. I still train almost every day. I'm a fourth degree black belt in the cross and Gracie. But, and, uh, when I have, stre- you know, ministry is very stressful. When I get stressed out, I go to the gym and I find like some 20 year old stud and I choke him out. And it makes me feel better. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I love jujitsu, but at that point in my life, I took something that was good for me, like, and and I made it toxic. Like, some people would climb an alcohol or pills. That was sure. That yeah. was my negative thing, and and I, I put so much time into this that in a period of three years, I had amassed a you know eighteen and two professional record. I won a world title. I was ranked number six in the world. Um, I made a lot of money. I opened a jitsu school. Had like a thousand students, and I really, on the surface, it looked like I was professionally very successful. But underneath that surface, underneath that false facade of success, my life was spiraling down. And my marriage was falling apart. Uh, my, uh, my family was falling. I was still dealing with panic attacks, anxiety, d- extreme depression, very, very little sleep because of the level of depression I was in and anxiety I was in. And uh, still a tyrant to my wife and kids. And uh, my marriage started to fall apart in a pretty bad way. Like uh, I'd sleep in a friend's house or in the gym or at a kid's bedroom. The loneliest place my wife and I would probably say we've ever been is not me being away on deployment in Afghanistan, but in our own beds with our backs turned toward each other and just this dead marriage. And uh, it did not take long for me being in this gym and this fighter fighting on television and stuff like that. There's lots of girls around to walk out of our marriage in an affair. I didn't really have much empathy at the time. My heart was pretty calloused, so I didn't even really care the consequences or how it affected my family. And uh, so when it did come to light, my solution was, all right, I'm not going to deal with this. We sat our family down. We're going to get divorced. I remember our kids crying and my wife crying, and I kind of held each other and embraced each other, but said, hey, it's going to be better. Like, you're not going to have to hear the fighting anymore. You're not going to have to uh, deal with the drama anymore. You'll get two Christmases. Like, all the things that everybody justifies divorce with, we were saying all those things. And uh, wow. we grew apart. You don't understand us anyway. I don't understand you. You don't understand me. It's just better if we go separate ways. So we sold our home. We filed for divorce, and we signed two separate 12-month leases on apartments. So we were pretty committed. And my wife and I had two very different reactions. Uh, Kathy joined a church. We were already going to a big church, but she joined like a church that she could be more plugged into. Uh, she wanted to be around positive people and wanted to be around mm-hmm. the right support. And, uh, and, you know, while she was going to this church, people would tell me that she'd go in there almost daily, not just on Sundays, and she would just pray for me. And, uh, you know, you'd have to ask, like, why, you know, what could somebody be praying for their husband while they're having an affair, being toxic to them, uh, really betraying her? And she would pray, God, let me, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. So that's what she was praying for me. And meanwhile, 
I went in this apartment and uh, within two days, it was like the full out bachelor pad. I didn't have this woman to deal with anymore because uh, she never understood me anyway. I signed up for this big fight on Showtime on Strike Force, uh, and I'm and, and I'm and I'm fighting this kid in Berto de Leon who's up and coming and and all my wins at that point. You know, I had 16 wins, uh, not defeated, um, and I, all, all my wins I had finished by submission. So this fight was my first time not to go to a submission, not to finish the guy. And I go to the decision, but the whole fight was like, if you're a fight fan, it's like a rocky fight, like back and forth. Every round I knocked him down, I kicked him in the face and knocked him down. He punched me in the face, knocked me down, it was back and forth. And I was standing in the middle of the ring and there's going to be a decision. And I had been hit so many times in the head, I had, I had no idea who won or what had happened. Wow. And, uh, and I remember the first judge announced for Humberto and the second judge announced for me, so it's to be a split decision. And the third judge announced for me and, uh, and everyone's cheering and all this pressure comes off and Obviously, I'm excited. I won the fight. And my hands raised, and ten thousand people in there, like cheering. And and, uh, and in that in that moment, I'm you know looking around. And when there's ten thousand people screaming, and you're in the center of the ring, it's still like deafening loud. But it's like everything. My mind just went quiet, and I was kind of present in that moment. And I was thinking like, of all these people here, not one of them was Kathy. Because looking mm. around, she wasn't there, and she had been in all my fights before. And the fact that she wasn't there was just like really like. Man, I just fought so hard for this stupid win on my MMA record, and I'm not fighting for the most important thing, you know. Wow. My family, my family, you know, and uh, and I think many people could relate to that. Not just MMA fighters and military people. Like we fight for promotions and more pay and and uh, the next goal in our life, but we don't fight that hard uh, as we would for professional things for the most important things, being, you know, and and uh, being our family. And and I had made it. I had probably walked out that ring at that moment with my head held low and I went home to my apartment and I'm laying in my bed and I'm thinking of my life and what my family's going through, my wife and kids and the devastation they're going through. And, and I blamed everything, everyone in my life. Uh, I, I was pretty much, I wouldn't call myself a victim, but I was behaving like a victim, right? My dad from my childhood and people in the military and my wife never understood me. Like it's everybody else's fault. Like everyone's an idiot. And the truth is the common denominator was me. And when I came to that conclusion laying in my bed, I thought, man, maybe my family would be sad without me but they would be better off. And uh, that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of over 20 veterans a day, right? Maybe my family would be sad without me, but they'll be better off. And I made a decision to take my life. Uh, I, uh, I had a Glock 22 pistol and I would go in my closet in my apartment and I'd put my family pictures on the floor around me. And, um, and I try to look at those pictures and maybe kind of a say goodbye and, and put that gun to my head and try to have the courage to uh, pull the trigger. And the, I believe it's a divine thing Every time I put that gun to my head, I'd see it play out like who was going to find me. And uh, the vision of who was going to find me was going to be my son, Hunter, because he was the only one a key with the key to my apartment. I mean, you're either going to – somebody's going to hear a gunshot or you're going to show up missing. Like somebody's going to find you. And, and that was enough for me not to want my son to be part of that to pump the brakes. But I was in such a dark place the next day or the next moments. I was back at it trying to like, I'm going to do this. And, uh, and there was one morning, morning I was in the closet with a pistol in my hand, and I heard a knock on the door, and I wasn't going to answer it. But when I heard Kathy's voice announce, and I heard my wife Kathy, I heard her voice announce, it, I panicked. And for some reason, she would never came in my closet, but for some reason I panicked and I hid the gun under a blanket, like probably because I was ashamed. And I went to the door and I was so mad. This sounds twisted, but I was so mad that she was there interrupting me, killing myself, that I just mm -hmm. started yelling at her. I'm like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And I'm yelling at her. And she's not a very calm person. Uh, but, uh, but in that moment, she was just really calm. And, she's, and she asked me a question that radically changed my life. And, probably saved my life. She's like, how could you do everything that you did in the military? She saw me become a recon Marine. We were 17, 18 when we met. So she, go through that training with 80% attrition rates. She saw me go through that, through all these schools and special operations training and pre-deployment workups and the deployments to Afghanistan. And, and then the discipline as a professional athlete, like training and cutting weight and doing everything. She saw this discipline professionally. And she's like, how could you do all of that? But when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys listening, but there's no more soul cutting word to me than to be called a quitter. But she was absolutely right. I'd been successful at professional things when it came to the most important things, like being a husband, being a father, being a young 17 year old kid that raised his hand and made a commitment to do something important with his life. I quit in all those things, including my will to live. And, and uh, so in that moment, I made a pretty radical decision that I was, uh, <clears throat> that it was time to get back in the fight. And I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I knew I couldn't do it with the people surrounding myself by because I surrounded myself by people that everybody, Everybody told me what I wanted to hear, not what I needed to hear. 
and I needed some really good accountability in my life at that time. And so uh, I uh, asked my wife, is there someone going to this church you're going to that could help hold me accountable to this? I didn't care about God or the church or anything. I just wanted somebody outside of my circle, and that was her yeah. circle. And so this guy, she introduced me to this guy named Steve Toth. He was just an elder on call at the church when she called there. And, uh, and so Steve met me at a Starbucks coffee shop. And when I met him, he wasn't in the military or MMA fight or anything like that. But I slid, I had written a five-paragraph order for those in the military, like a military operational order of yeah. how to fix my life. I was super proud of it. And I probably smugly like slid it over to him. Really, what I was really doing was like, hey, can you show this to my wife? Because I'm trying to win her back now, I'm trying to manipulate the situation. And he didn't even read that paper. And he put his hand on it and slid it back over to me. He told me I was going to fail. I remember my response was like, I was pretty upset because I'm like, man, I just put all this work into this. I'm trying here and you're telling me I'm going to fail. And uh, I'll never forget, he tapped on that paper and he said, if this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time and I'm not going to let you waste mine. And, um, you know, the truth is at that point in my life, I had tried the pills, medication, VA programs, counseling. Uh, I tried everything. Uh, and some good things, some bad things. I mean, bad professional success, but none of those things changed my situation. We have a mm. saying at Mighty Oaks Foundation that comes out of this moment. If what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Right? If what you're doing in your life isn't working, why not try something different? And, uh, I tried everything. Nothing had worked. It was time for me to try something different. So I didn't really understand what it meant, but I trusted this guy, Steve, and I surrendered my life to Christ. And beyond that decision, Steve began to mentor me in a, for a whole year from 2010 to 2011 in biblical living. And what that really meant for me was coming to the realization uh, that all these bad things that had happened to me when in my childhood, the physical abuse of my father, the, uh, the dysfunctional home, losing my, having my brother killed when we were, when I was 14 years old, like uh, losing Foster Harrington in our first deployment. We had been, we have served together for 10 years. He was one of my best friends. He was killed during our first deployment. He was shot in the head and, and killed instantly. And, uh, and then losing, you know, burying 15 friends over my deployments, like, <clears throat> like all these bad things, as bad as those things were, those things didn't lead me that, to be in that closet with a pistol in my hand would let me there with mm. choices I made in response to those things. And that was a very important revelation for me to realize that I couldn't blame the situations that happened to me. I can only blame myself for the choices. I had to take responsibility for the choices and I never lost control of the ability to choose. Uh, and as cliche as it may sound, I realized I didn't have to let my past define my future. I could choose a different future moving forward. Now these biblical principles Steve were teaching me or, or a better set of choices. In other words, I, I, I would, would I still get angry? Of course. Would I still have anxiety and depression? Of course. Would I still have panic attacks? Yes. Uh, would me and my wife still get in fights? Of course we would. But how the choices I would make and how I responded to those things would be different moving forward and produce a different result, a very different result. In fact, it radically changed my life because through the, being intentional about choosing biblical solutions to the problems that I had from my past and the way I was moving forward brought restoration into my my marriage, my family. Kathy and I have been married 26 years now. I have a great relationship with my kids, an incredible relationship with my kids. Uh, uh, they, you know, two of them serve in ministry full time. Uh, so um, I have a have had restoration in my anxiety, depression, PTSD, and how I manage it, how I manage different things in my life. I found hope again uh, through that, and ultimately, I found what what I've sought in my whole life, and that's purpose. I mean, we were created that purpose. Without purpose, we weather up and die. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain about purpose. It's the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. When Steve Toth introduced me a life that I believe God created me to live, I found out the why. And it was really, to answer your question, that took 20 minutes to answer. It's uh, it, it was really to pay forward what others had did for me, to give others the second chance that Kathy gave me that God gives us all and the mentorship that Steve gave me. It was really just uh, the realization that I wasn't the only one struggling. Other people were struggling uh, the same way as I was when you going through something like that, you feel like you're all alone, but to realize other people are going through it too. And uh, for me, it was like, I felt like I was dying of cancer and Steve Toth gave me the cure and mm -hmm. I had, I couldn't keep that to myself. I was obligated to share it with others. And so God just really used all of that that I just shared with you to just place this burden on my heart for other people going through the same thing. I was able to have empathy again for the first time in a long time 
but empathy for people that had experienced what I was experiencing and uh, through not wanting to live anymore, through marriages. Uh, I mean, people were killing themselves at a rate of 22 a day. People were divorcing who had been to combat at a rate of 80%. Like, but I had the solution, uh, and that solution was not only surrendering your life to Christ, but aligning your life to the life that God created us to live and aligning our marriages to the marriage God created us to be in. And, uh, and I had to share it with others. And so that manifested in me uh, feeling burdened to do that. And, and it started Mighty Oaks Foundation in 2011. And since then, you know, I've spoken to 250,000 active duty troops. I've written seven or eight books now. I don't even should know the number, but, and, uh, and given away over 150,000 copies of my books to the troops. You know, I get to speak to active duty service members all over the world. Uh, and then we have a recovery program called a legacy program that we've had over 4,000 graduates uh, go to 4,100 graduates, but now we're doing about a thousand per year. We pay for everything, including their travel. We spend about four or five million dollars a year in this programming. So everything's for free for veterans, active duty service members, first responders, spouses. And, uh, and you know, so the last 10 years, I've just been paying it forward. And God's brought the most amazing team and orchestrated ability to do that in, in such an incredible way. And I'm just blessed to be a part of it and continue to heal every day because of it. I love it, man. That's like, uh, I love drinking water through a fire hose. <laughs> that, was a long, that was the longest answer you could have asked for. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good, though. It's good. I, lo I love to hear the story, and I love the perspective of it. I think um, I I'm reminded of Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for his good. Um, you know, one of the things that I hear as I, as I hear your story is, um, man, you, you never failed, but you weren't always successful you know, as it just pertains to the, the stuff behind the scenes, you're obviously the same guy who did all of those things that you are now, but with a new lens, um, you know, your lens obviously through Christ has really changed your life. I'm curious, how do you keep, um, I'm, I'm just gonna say it this way. How, how do you keep the demons at bay today? Like what, what's your normal routine look like? What's your, What's your process look like? Because you, you're not any less intense than you were, I would imagine. Uh, you seem you seem like a very intense guy, and I've I've, I've kind of tracked you online a little bit. And uh, your mission, I mean, you just you don't fail, right? And I appreciate that. It, at least it doesn't seem like it. I'm, How do you keep that same lens? Now, <laughs> it seems like it's worse with my age. Uh, I'm very committed, passionate, and I always have to be engaged in something. And uh, I know my my heart just is just burden to serve. It always has been burden to serve. And uh, I mean, right now I'm. You know, outside of Mighty Oaks, we just we formed Save Our Allies, and we I just went to back to Afghanistan. We rescued seventeen thousand people from there. Uh, and, you know, I never thought I'd be back doing that. So I'm always I am always engaged, and I, I so to answer your question, two things. Uh, one is I when I was in that darkest moment in my life and making those bad decisions, I had no accountability. I had yeah. systematically pushed accountability out of my life and surrounded myself by people who told me everything I wanted to hear. And not what I needed to hear. So at this phase in my life, I know that me, Chad, has to have accountability. The most dangerous place anybody can be in the world is without accountability, especially men. I had to have accountability. So I have a really good circle of very accountable people. I, I'm in a part of a group. I'm in part of two groups of, of men that literally could tell anybody anything and, and, and have an open forum. I mean, one of the guys could be having an affair. And, 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 uh, or be addicted to pornography or something like that. And these are godly men that could be open about it and talk about it and unburden their hearts so that we could deal with it, uh, in a, in a place that's totally safe and confidential. And, uh, and so creating that environment for something like that was important is, I think it's important to men and very important to, to me in my life to be able to keep people, intense people like me or passionate people like me in check because without accountability, you know, I could go off the rails again. And, and other is, a, um, I had a, I have, I have a great advisory board and there's a pastor named Chris Brown in a North, North coast church in San Diego, a real big church. Some of you might've heard it before. And I was, I was like, mighty Oaks was doing really well. And I was sending updates and like, Hey man, look how awesome this is. We, you know, we just did God so great. And, and he says, and, and instead of them like saying, yeah, great job. And, you know, happy for you. He just wrote back uh, a few simple hard words. He said, yeah, don't ever forget you, you're one mistake away from losing it all. <laughs> you know, you're one stupid decision away from losing it all. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, it, it was, uh, 
it was a really good timing for me to hear that because I was getting really f- moving forward in ministry and getting really excited about how things were doing. And it just maybe re- reminded me of the, the story of Paul and, uh, and, and, you know, Paul's biggest threat was that he was always one decision away from becoming Saul again. Right. Amen. He could always go back to who he was. And, and I'm like, man, uh, not that I had a name change, but I definitely had an identity change. And, and I'm, I'm always one decision away from going back to the old chat again and re- recognizing that vulnerability in myself and how flawed I am and how, uh, and how far I've come. It takes, it takes so, I feel like it's taken so long and so much work to get to where I am right now, but it would take one second, one moment, one stupid decision to go back to where I was and just recognizing that vulnerability in myself and, and not giving myself any credit to say that I, I, I've made it or I arrived and realizing how, how fragile, um, everything is it just brings a lot of accountability to me personally hey guys just taking a quick time out from this conversation with chad to remind you about the spirit and truth conference that's right spirit and truth putting on our annual conference this year march 17th through the 19th here dayton ohio that's the evening of the 17th the evening of the 18th and the morning of the 19th We want you to come get your cup filled. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, what it means to connect with the Holy Spirit, and why it matters to your walk with Christ. I think you're going to love this conference. It's going to feel more like a camp meeting, uh, an opportunity for you to have your cup filled with the Holy Spirit. So to get connected, to come register for the conference, check out spiritandtruth.life slash conference. Hey, and when you check out, be sure to use the code reclamation on the checkout and you'll save a little money on that registration fee. Just a gift from us to you. I hope to see you there. I'll be hosting. Make sure you come up, say hi. Let me know that you listen to the podcast. I can't wait to see you guys in person. Now let's get back to this conversation with Chad. Yeah. One of the things we say around here a lot is that if you aren't dedicated to your disciplines, you'll be destroyed by your distractions and that it's really born out of my belief that I'm 24 hours away from ruining my entire life at any given moment. Um, and, and so are there daily things that you do to connect, um, with God and with Kathy? I'm, I'm kind of curious about both. I mean, one is, you know, I, I, I'm not a, I'm pretty regimented person, uh, and a pretty, a pretty disciplined person, but the one place I have, and I'm just, I'll just be open and transparent for somebody that just wrote a marriage book because uh, that's just who I am. The one, the one place I, I, I am not regiment discipline I struggle with is my personal time with God uh, mm. for some reason. And I, I think it's a, you know, a spiritual influence. For some reason, that's the one area of my life, as disciplined of a person I am, as regimented a person I am, that I can be distracted from, that cannot take priority, that I, I, I struggle with. And, uh, and so I have to be uh, – I have to really put a lot of priority – on the discipline side of having a regimented time with God, you know, and, uh, discipline becomes habit, uh, through repetition. And so, you know, you have to be able to take the discipline to make it a habit. And I, I've, I have to not only say that I did that in my life, I have to do that all the time in my life with, when it comes to my relationship with God, uh, in my, my time with God, not that I don't appreciate my time with God not that I don't crave it because I do crave it, but some reason, and I believe it's a spiritual thing, Something blockades me from being from it being easy and convenient, and just uh, and just fall into my daily regimen like other things do. I mean, I won't miss the opportunity to train jujitsu uh, because I love jujitsu, uh, but I will miss sitting down and reading the Bible. I will miss my personal worship and prayer time with God daily. Not because I love jujitsu more than I love God. It's just something happens with that, and I'm aware of that, and so I have to be very regimented with it. With Kathy, I mean, you know, Kathy and I are both very busy with our ministry and what we do. Uh, we try to have some regimented time with each other. That's a lot easier. We, we love spending time together. Uh, but we also, uh, we pray together. And I think couples that pray together stay together. It sounds cheesy and cliche to say that. But, man, uh, it, it, is, it is so crucial to pray together. And, we, you know, when we pray together most is when we're mad at each other. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when, we, when, we, when we're not happy with each other. Because you kind of like just suck your pride up and and, uh, and bite your tongue and, and hold each other's hand and pray together and uh, and not we don't just pray together when things are going good we pray together all the time and uh, and daily and that's that's a, that's important. Yeah, I I think um, I, I we saw my wife and I saw a counselor once when I was in a real bad 
way. And one of the things that she said is not just pray together, but like pray over each other. So like yeah. praying for my wife's head and her heart every day. It, I, I mean, I know God's working through that prayer, but I was, I'm always really shocked on how much it changes my heart. It's just so hard to stay mad at somebody who you're physically praying God to bless, you know, like it's, it's this weird, it's this weird tension. And they're praying over you. Uh, there is a, there is a, uh, I do have a warning for that though. Well, I, I agree with you hundred percent, by the way. Yeah. The warning for that uh, is because we could all find ourselves doing it is don't use that praying over them or praying for them as a way to make a point. Like you're, talking <laughs> to God, you're talking to God, but you're really talking to them. <laughs> right, right, right. Sometimes I tell guys, I was like, "Hey, it may be the only uninterrupted time you get, but don't yeah. use it." Yeah. <laughs> don't. Will you, will you, will you help her to make a better dinner and be more on, and uh, and be more intimate with me? Will you help her to dress more sexy for me? <laughs> like, you start like thinking of things that you're going to pray. You're trying to talk to her. You're getting a message to her. Yeah. Oh, passive aggressive (laughs) prayers. There's nothing. This is this. this, That's the perfect example of our humanity, right? Our flesh kind of just eking in there, right? Like, Lord, if I could just get what I want. (laughs) But your spouse will too. And they'll see right through it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How how did, I I mean, in this, in this book, you are very uh, vulnerable and it seems to be your, um, your mode in all of your ministry. Um, how, How did writing this book, uh, feel for you putting it all out there about, I, I mean, this is a lot of, I mean, you've shared your story multiple times, but like, it, it's hard to say you're not a good husband. And that's kind of essentially where you start with this resource. Uh, yeah. What was that? What was that like for you working through all that? Well, it is hard. It's, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's not as shameful to speak bad of yourself. And, but I don't know the way, the way I've looked at, I never wanted to be a speaker or an author, author that never was as, it's something I was inspired to, to do. I love doing it now, uh, but I came to the point to say, if I'm going to do it, I want to be as impactful as possible. And I think to be as impactful as possible, I have to be as honest as possible. One of the issues I've had with people in ministry, with speakers, is this very surface level, and people aren't willing to be vulnerable and transparent. And, and, I, and I think it does two things. One, people can't identify uh, with you because most people know in their own hearts, their own depth of, of, of dirt and filth and the muck and mire that they are in in their own life. And so if you can't communicate that you're actually there too, then they can't relate to you. Uh, and, uh, and, and just the, what God has done in my life and where God has me in my life right now warrants me showing where God took me from. Yeah. And so if, if I sugarcoat where I was and I'm dishonest because of my own pride or trying to protect my own, my, my own image, if I sugarcoat that and make it sound a little bit better than it was, then that, that raises the gap and closes the margin of what God did in my life. And I want God to get full credit for everything. Mm. That he's done. Because I believe others could see that and say, wow, if God could do that in his life, then he could do that in my life too. And, uh, and so I think that was very important for a Christian communicator who's sharing the gospel and sharing God's transformative power to be completely honest about the darkest and deepest, darkest moments of your life and the deepest valleys of your life. Because when you don't, you go a little bit up the hill, a little bit out of that valley to protect your own identity, you rob God of that full margin of what he's done in your life. And, uh, and, and that ultimately will, will reach less people. It re- won't resonate and land with people. Uh, and, uh, and people see through it and, uh, and, and God, I think just won't bless it. Uh, so, uh, for me, that's the only way I'm willing to communicate. If I'm going to do something, uh, that's, I want to do something that's gonna be most impactful. And so, yeah, it's, it sucks. It's embarrassing, uh, writing it. I'm like, oh man, I can't believe I'm putting in there. My, 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 you know, Thomas Nelson, who's obviously a very big publisher and, uh, Harper and Harper Collins, you know, they, they do a tremendous amount of editing. Their teams are incredible, by the way. They're, they're such a great publisher. And they went through this, and there's been a couple of a couple of their editing teams came back and like, "You sure you want to say that?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yes, I'm sure I want to say that. I'm absolutely sure that I need to say that." And well, uh, I, so, well, I think that there's a, a beauty in someone who, um, from all accounts on the outside, like, I, I mean, an American badass, right? Like eight, eight eight different deployments, the MMA fighting and all these things. And yet 
in so many ways, um, your greatest strength is when you can admit your weakness. And, and so uh, you, you wrote this book with, um, modeled after an MMA, um, kind of rounds and it, it's, we're talking about the book, but I, I want everyone to hear this because I think it's really important. This isn't just a story about Chad's life. This really is a workbook. It's designed, you, you say in the intro, like it's designed to be read as a couple. And so I, I'm, I would love to hear a little bit about the intentionality, first of all, by ordering it kind of an MMA fighting and uh, the rounds kind of, so to speak. And then also uh, about why you wrote it as a couple workbook and not just a, I mean, cause you, you got enough of a story. It would, it would sell on its own, but this is, this is like hard workbook. This is not easy workbook. <laughs> it is. You know, I've, I've read a lot of books. So I enjoy reading. <clears throat> I enjoy writing too now, but what, what I hate about a book is when, when you read a book and you, you, you finish the last page and you close the chapter and, it, and it's over, right? It's a, mm-hmm. it kind of like goes on your bookshelf and there's nothing, there's no takeaway. There's no call to action for it. And so for me, like I want, I want people to close the book and, and then, then the work begins. Cause now you have to implement the biblical principles that are in here. And so that's why I wanted it to be a workbook. I wanted it to be something that people wouldn't be, they just read and be moved and inspired by Kathy and my, by Kathy and I's journey. Uh, I want, uh, because you know, Kathy and I are just two people, uh, who God's, you know, really blessed, uh, to be able to do this ministry and, and God's restored our marriage, but we're two broken and flawed people as well. And uh, so what I believe more than the, what's more important in the testimony of our marriage in this book is the principles that are in it, the biblical principles that don't just apply to our marriage, but apply to every marriage in, in God's creation. And so uh, I, I decided to make it into a workbook that couples do together because I wanted them to be able to take action in these principles, not just read them and be inspired by them, not to be motivated by them. I uh, people may call me a motivational speaker and stuff like that, but I could care less about motiv- motivating people or inspiring people. I want to challenge people. And, uh, and I think uh, by couples reading this together, they're going to have to sit face-to-face with each other and answer some hard questions about their marriage, about each other, and, uh, and be challenged to calibrate their, their marriage and lives to the marriage and lives that God intends for them. And uh, that's hard work, and it's a fight. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, angles we could have went when we talked to the publisher. Should we take the angle of military because there's so much military story in here? Or should we take the angle of, of MMA? And I'm like, man, I thought back at that moment where I fought for that stupid win on my record over Humberto de Leon. And I won the fight, and I love fighting. I love winning, by the way. I'm a big competitor. Uh, but the contrast to me fighting so hard for this professional win on my fight record and how many other people out there fight so hard. Uh, for professional success in their life, but they don't fight for the most important things in their life. They don't fight for their family. And, you know, Kathy asked me a question, why won't you, when it comes to your family, you'll quit. You know, essentially what you're saying is, why won't you fight for us? Why won't you fight for your family? And, uh, and I think that that's not just a message to me uh, from my spouse. That's probably a message in some words, in some other format across the world that every spouse has said, every wife has said at some point to their husband, why won't you fight for us the way you fight for other things? And, uh, and the truth is we should step up that challenge and fight for our marriages and fight for our family and fight for our children to win back the marriage that God intends for us. And that's the subtitle of the book. And uh, so, you know, in a championship MMA fight, there's five rounds. Uh, and you don't always win your first round. I mean, you could go out there and, 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 uh, and lose your first round. You could have a 10-8 round, which means you almost lost the fight. You got... You know, just right with you. 10-8 round means the referee is close to stopping it. Uh, you almost lost, and you come back and win mm-hmm. in that fifth championship round. And so you're never out of the fight uh, in, the, in your marriage, no matter how bad your marriage may seem, no matter how much you may think, I don't love this person anymore. I don't like this person. We grew apart. Uh, it's going to be better to be divorced. There's no way to reconcile. There's five rounds in that fight, and, uh, and you can win in the championship round. And, uh, and so we want to take people through that journey of looking at it in, in, in not just one round, but five different rounds and, uh, and how to and break it out in the workbook that they could do together. And so, and, uh, and you know, I, I, loved, uh, I loved the partnership that came along with this book, Adam Davis. Uh, you know, I had, I had the story and I was able to write my story. Adam Davis, uh, is a, he co-authored with me because he does an incredible job at devotionals and workbooks and studies. He's, uh, he's a great author and he's a friend of mine comes from a law enforcement background, his own story. Uh, so he, he worked with me on it and he, uh, he was just great. And then Steve Green, uh, the president of the 
of Hobby Lobby and the founder of the Bobby Museum did the forward on it. So we just had some great, and then man, our agent, and then uh, and then Thomas Nelson, just a great team put this thing together. And so I think a lot of marriages will be blessed by it. Yeah, I, I um, I, well, Adam, Adam wrote some some really great words at the beginning, just about your and Kathy's story and the impact that you had on his life. And um, one of the things that I love to hear and see in Christians' lives is is spiritual reproduction, right? And how how are we making disciples? who are going to turn around and then make more disciples. And it feels like that's um, kind of what you're doing here with the workbook part of it. Like, Hey, like God's changed my marriage and I believe God can change your marriage too. And you're kind of passing that on. Um, I also think that you've got a very important message that uh, sometimes get lost. Yeah. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this about, um, about how Christian men can still be tough, competitive, uh, masculine, you know, positive masculine men. Like for me, for me, it's just really important that we get away from kind of uh soft, wimpy Jesus. <laughs> to, you know, Cause I just don't see Jesus that way at all. When I read the scriptures, I, I just see this incredibly tough, um, driven man. Uh, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Cause you, you don't fit in the typical, uh, guy, Christian speaker profile. You know what I mean? Does that make yeah. sense? It, it does, and uh, I'm very aware of that, and um, and uh, it's a very personal thing to me in my in my own story that I, I didn't talk about when I was telling my story. In fact, I was I was in the process of writing a book, and I, and I was still come out eventually, but because uh, I'm about about sixty percent done with it, called called uh, uh, I mean I forget what it's titled, like, but it, I don't remember. It's, but it's by the masculinity of Jesus, uh, mm. um, and. Um, so I mean, it was writing this manuscript about the masculinity of Jesus and sharing, just really outlining who Jesus actually was, how he wasn't this wimpy guy walking around with a beautiful flowing Vadal uh, Sassoon hair and a, and a white robe skipping around Jerusalem. Like he was a, a rough dude that, you know, walked 30,000 miles throughout his lifetime and, and, and sandals <laughs> and uh, he probably had some giant carpenter forearms like Amish. And, you know, I mean, he was a, he was a rough dude. Uh, and, uh, and he stood against, uh, injustices and what was what wasn't right in the world and and their, and their governments and their religious uh, ide- ideological rule of the day and I mean he stood against hard things he was a, he was a rough guy and and I think we lost that along the way and I think it isn't lost by accident I think right. people uh, there's a spiritual battle going on and the devil would want nothing more than to look at Jesus as a caricature of a of a real man uh, as a as as wimp and weak and, and maybe like even a fairy tale kind of character. That's yeah. what the, that's what the enemy would want us to view Jesus as. And, and, and in part, I believe, you know, somewhat the church has been a culprit in this. Uh, and, and, uh, so for me, when I was going through, uh, my twenties, I searching for identity and, and, and manhood, like most young men in their twenties do, I'm, I'm around all these special operations guys that I'm, being mentored by and uh and growing up under and and aspiring to be and they're like freaking studs i mean they're physical studs they're mentally tough uh they're aggressive and uh and achievers and i'm like these are the guys i want to be like this they're in my community i respect them and i want to be like these men and i'm going to work as hard as i can to not only be like this men, but to be one of the best of them that I could be. That was my goal. And, uh, and I, and that's who I, that's who I was attracted to. And then I go to church on Sundays with my wife because not because I cared about going to church, but because it was the kind of married thing to do. And I'm, my wife's going to be a great Christian woman and, and be loyal to me. And my kids are going to go to Sunday school, like kind of just play along, but I'm not joining the surf the softball team with those nerds on at church because they're a bunch of weak dudes. And I look at the contrast in my profession of these alpha males and these, uh, and these men in church that are being drug around by their hand, by their wife. Uh, and, and, uh, it wasn't inspiring to me. It wasn't attractive to me. Yeah. And so when I came to this decision in my life, getting to Afghanistan to decide, okay, I'm going to combat the military talks about four pillars of resiliency, mind, body, spirit, social, like mentally, I was mentally tough. I was, I was, I was physically tough. I had a strong social network. With spirituality, like I had to wear a Christian stamp with my dog tag, but the truth is, I, I thought and I believed, probably a thousand percent convinced in my mind at the time, that Christianity and people of faith were weak. Like I had to choose between being a warrior and being a uh, 
being a person of faith. And of course, I'm going to choose at that moment to be a warrior. I didn't know that the two couldn't coexist. I didn't know that mm. the strongest men on the battlefield of combat and of life were men of God. I didn't know that because I didn't see that model. And so I learned that the hard way by trying to do combat, trying to do hard life with the, without God in my life, by intentionally putting God out and leaving a giant hole inside of my heart that over the years I filled with hate and rage and anger and bitterness and not realizing that spiritual foundation, that spiritual pillar, when you talk about those four spirit pillars of resiliency, that spiritual pillar is the foundation that lets you endure life, the hardships of life and be able to move forward, that these tough men that I was aspiring to be, the ones that didn't have that spiritual foundation all broke, not just me. I know many mm. of them ended up losing their families, killing themselves in jail, becoming alcoholics because they were tough uh, mentally and physically. They were part of a strong social network. They didn't have that fourth pillar. They didn't have the spiritual foundation. So what their toughness was temporary. And, uh, and so was mine. And so coming to the other side of that, realizing that, I, seen two I see two deficiencies. One is in this alpha male deficiency in our culture where you have these tough guys uh, out there who people are attracted to, uh, the jockos of the world, right? But the ones that don't have that spiritual pillar, they eventually crumble. It's yeah. a matter of time. And I was one of them. So I, I see a deficiency there that I strive to, to rectify. When I say I spoke to 250,000 active duty troops, that's the message I go to with. These are four pillars of resiliency the military teaches you, mind, body, spirit, social. The spiritual one I didn't have, it almost cost me everything. Here's what my life looks like now with it. Here's how you can be resilient to the hardships of, of combat and life on and life and on the battlefield and, and be able to be able to push forward as a warrior and, and be a husband and be a father and be a, a great standing member in your community. Like this is what resiliency really looks like. Is the fourth pillar. I'm able to do that. I'm able to rectify that problem uh, or be part of rectifying the problem on the military side. But I also realize the other side. There's that church, the church side in the church where men are, men are passive and they're weak and they're being led around church and uh, by, by, their, by their wives and not taking the leadership uh, role. And so I realized that weakness there. So that's why I want to go into churches and speak as a, as a guy that has a background like mine and, and tell these and, and try to be a model for these, some younger guy in church like me that can say, hey, that guy is tough. That guy mm. is like an alpha male. Oh, and, and he loves Jesus and his life is in a solid position right now because he loves Jesus. And because, so I want to, I want to be able to rectify both of those dilemmas uh, through my ministry. I, I absolutely love it. Um, now I, I know that our, um, our audience is a, as a praying audience, my, my community here at the reclamation podcast, um, as, as this book is launched into the world on, um, what can they be praying for specifically? Like what's your desire that, that comes from, from this resource uh, fight for us and, and how can we pray for you and with you? Well, I mean, I, I pray for the, the marriages that are out there. We, we know that, you know, in the military community, we have 80% divorce rate. I think, in, I think outside the military uh, and what I say is combat veterans outside the military, we have like, 50, 60 percent of our I don't yeah. know, the, the stats. I don't want to say the stats changed. It's very hard to get an exact stat on that because there's, there's such a variance between 50 and 60 percent of marriages in America fail. And so there's so many uh, families out there that are struggling. So I want to pray for for them uh, that that they will re realize the truth of God's word. They have been told and we all been told that there's no handbook to marriage. There's no blueprint to marriage. But the truth is that's that's a lie, a lie. There is a handbook to marriage. It's the Bible. We just need to pick it up and read it. Uh, God's, yeah. God has a blueprint for marriage, and it's, it's his holy union between a man, a woman, and, and God. And it's the covenant that he created, the very first covenant and, uh, that he created amongst people was, was the marriage. And so God has a plan for your marriage, uh, and there is hope for your marriage. If Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, then he could restore your dead marriage. Uh, he did it in mine. And so I, I pray for those couples, and I pray this book. I mean, I wrote this book uh, to be a resource. Uh, every, every book I've written, I hadn't written it uh, for financial gain. Uh, most of my, I've given away over 150,000 copies of my books. A lot of the money from my books, most of the money go from my books goes back to, uh, back to our ministry to help our ministry. And so, uh, so it's my prayer that this book will sell as many copies as possible and get in the hands of as many churches, uh, for resources, Christian bookstores, uh, uh, pastoral counselors, uh, or biblical counselors, and in the hands of 
those marriages that are struggling. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's my prayer, uh, that this resource will get out there because there's lots of marriage books out there, but I think what makes this one different is, uh, is I wrote it because this is what I was looking for when I was struggling, a pragmatic, practical view of a couple who was in the, the muck and mire, uh, as bad as it could be. And, uh, and Jesus reached down and, and pulled us out. So, um, there's there's a lot of marriage books out there, but I don't think there's a lot of out there that, that really get into the, the ugly. And sometimes we need to both see the ugly. I love it. I love it. Uh, okay. I have one more question for you. Um, but before I ask it, I'm curious, where can uh, all my listeners go to, to learn more about uh, the ministry that you're doing and pick up their copy of the book? Uh, well, Mighty Oaks programs.org. If any veterans, active duties, first responders, spouses are struggling, uh, all our programs are free. We pay for even travel and, uh, and we, uh, we have an application button on our website, mightyoaksprograms.org. You can apply there and get help. Any of our books, uh, there, including, uh, any of our books that you see on the website, uh, they're all for sale. Uh, but we always tell our, those in our veteran community, if you can't afford one, uh, just email us and we'll send them. Uh, but we do sell them so that we could give them to people that really can't afford them. So if you can't, if you can't afford it, then don't take advantage of that. But if you can't, no questions asked, just email us and we'll mail you uh, a free copy of any book that we have on our website at mightyoaksprograms.org. Also, uh, while it's free to those guys, I spend like four to $5 million a year uh, in programming. So it's free to them. It's not free to me. So, and free to our ministry. So if you want to support, we are a 501c3 tax deductible ministry. Uh, you can make a donation there and help support these amazing programs that we do for our warriors. Uh, and then the book, uh, you go to fight for us book and, uh, purchase a copy there. It's on available now for pre-order. It'll release on February 15th. And, uh, and then, and then, uh, if you don't want to go to just fight for us book, uh, dot com, you could also just go to any of your favorite book retailer and they'll have it there. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I think it's a, I think maybe like Christian books. It's pretty much anywhere you sell books. I love it. I love it. And uh, your book actually comes out. It comes out on the 15th, which is my wedding anniversary, 19 years of marital, mostly, mostly marital bliss. <laughs> Sounds like a great anniversary gift. <laughs> it will. It will. Uh, okay. Last question. I always love to ask people. Uh, it's an advice question uh, to give yourself, except I get to n- name the day and the time. Um, and so I, I'm curious if you could go back to the day after you enlisted in the Marine Corps. And you could go talk to that young Marine, grab him by the face. And now with all the wisdom that you have, if you could give him one piece of advice, what would it be? It may sound like the answer that belongs in this show, but it's the, it's the true, it's the true answer. Uh, and it, it would be to have a solid foundational relationship with Christ before mm-hmm. entered into that, into that, into that journey as a warrior. And, uh, and the reason I know I can say that with complete authenticity is one of my favorite things I get to do uh, is go speak to Marine Corps recruits at Marine Corps boot camp. I'm one of two speakers that are allowed to go. I've been there every quarter for seven years. So I speak to almost all the recruits that come uh, in the Marine Corps. And I get that opportunity not to go back and tell myself, but to tell, the, to tell them. And, uh, and, I, and I get to talk about those four pillars of resiliency, your mind, body, spirit, social. And I, and I get to tell them that I didn't have that. And, uh, and, and they can make a decision now on the front of their career to have that. Don't wait till they're facing a divorce. Don't wait till they're sitting in the closet with a pistol in their hand. They can make the decision now and, uh, and, and be truly resilient, combat-ready warriors to face the battles of combat and to face the battles of life and end up on the other side being exactly who God created them to be. Uh, but it starts with a relationship with him. And uh, I wrote this book called another book called Path to Resiliency. It's about a 45-minute read, pocketbook. Uh, the Marine Corps lets me give it out at boot camp, and it's about that spiritual foundation. And uh, wow. so if anybody's listening and, and, and wants that for themselves, uh, that book is I think it's we have it 99 for 99 cents on Kindle. Uh, we sell it uh, on our website for nine bucks, which is like a terrible deal because it's a little small book. But why is it ter- it's a terrible bargain for nine bucks? The reason why is because we're giving away over a hundred thousand of them, so that's how we fund it. So it's about that, and I get to give that away to these recruits. So that's kind of I'm getting to live the answer to my question, not to myself. Yeah. But to these, these guys who are same position I was in. That's so cool. That's so cool, Chad. Uh, thank you so much for what you're doing for our service members. Thank you for your honesty and your authenticity, and um, 
for what you're doing for our country. I just think it means the world. And so, uh, so I appreciate okay. you and, and the mission that you're on, man. Thanks, man. Thanks so much, man. God bless you. Wow. 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 What an incredible story. I love his heart. I love the way he approaches uh, redemption through brokenness. I love the way he fought for his marriage. There's such goodness in his heart. You can see that he just doesn't know how to fail. And um, and I love that. I love that. And, and I hope that as you look at your own marriage, there are some really strong things that you can take away. And if you haven't started praying with your spouse yet, there's one thing that you hear out of this entire episode. Please, please, please pray with your spouse. It'll change your marriage. I promise. As always, guys, I'm so thankful to be in this community with you. I'm thankful for our relationship, your commitment to the podcast. And if there's any way that I can help you, please don't hesitate to email. You can check out the full show notes at reclamationpodcast.com. You can also get connected with me through that website. Uh, And remember, guys, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.